0: We at Time to Rebuild would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. At the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria, and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community.
1: You ask me the questions and I'll talk. I think you've been yelled at a few times, mate.
2: That's a really good point that you make because we're, this is what this podcast is about, is giving out a side. You're, you're going you're gonna to do things that are compromised, maybe the values and morals that you were brought up with or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals that I was brought up having.
1: Um, my focus is just focusing on what I'm going to do when I get out.
2: And all the stuff that you mightn't have thought of that mm. goes on in the prison. Yeah, like
0: how many alarms get set off when you walk in with me, Cronin. Welcome back to part B with our chat with Luke Anderson. And we pick it back up where he's starting to implement the changes to become the man
1: that he wants to be. Hope you enjoy. And so I, I started like going, okay, I need to start figuring out, well, what, look, what, what, I've got to gather my resources and I've got to start chipping away at this and I've got to, you know, start reporting back. <laughs> so this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. So over... Yeah, over the next little bit, I started reading self-help books through prison. A lot of self-help books. And what's the
0: collection like in prison of self-help books?
1: Yeah, pretty big, I'd imagine. Yeah, there's a lot. It's yeah. it's actually such a it's such a strange environment for yeah, you you watch the same person that recommends this fantastic self-help book yeah. to you. The next day, the bloke's bashing someone because somebody's taken some of their cheese without asking and you're like dude (laughs) (laughs) you just recommended how to win friends and influence people to me and then now you're committing acts of violence like come on man skip
0: the chapter (laughs) yeah (laughs) you
1: missed that bit but um yeah I, I, i read a few books in there that sort of gave me fundamental principles of of just being able to Open up conversations, and I, I think I kind of came to the conclusion myself. But look, the, the main the main ones that, that I got recommended uh, recommended were yeah, seven habits of highly effective people, uh, yeah, how to how to win friends and influence people, and, man's search for meaning. Uh, oh, ah, yeah, Vi- ah, uh Victor, Victor Frankl, Victor like, Frankl, um,
2: yeah, Alstad, is it? Yep. Yeah, yeah, he was in Auschwitz, Auschwitz. yeah. yeah. So,
1: so that that book, I came across that because I signed up to a, a maths and a business class that was run by the TAFE um, in yeah inside the prison, and the this lady, I've got to find her. I don't know who she is, but she was the teacher for the class. And she'd get walked in by the officer and she'd come in and we'd sit down to do a certificate to in business management or maths or whatever it is. And as soon as the officer would walk off, she, she'd she go, she'd look left, look right, and she'd go, all right, you don't want to learn about maths. She'd go, she'd give us our own hope, she'd run her own course. She'd get out, like men's search for meaning, and she would make us read it. She would go, you read this, and then we'd have to come back and tell her what we learnt from it. And from that tiny little book, the whole, like, l- reading reading what that bloke had been through and the way that he mentally worked through things, Of like, the bloke got robbed of some seriously <laughs> uh, ma- major years of his life, but then, you know, family members died, whole community eradicated and whatever, but he's still sitting there in Auschwitz going, you know, I've still got control over my mind so I can still make choices that can potentially impact my outcomes. And I started feeling real guilty about complaining about anything in my circumstances. So I was like, well, I really need to start to look for opportunities. I need to be thinking about the interactions that I'm having with with officers and other inmates, like starting to – you know, really have a good strategy around balancing those things. And then putting some principles into play where, and it sounds like a funny environment to do it in prison, but I go, all right, well, if I'm going to build this whole concept of the man that my partner deserves, what what does the husband of a, a doctor that looks like a model uh? What does a husband of that? So it's probably like Brad Pitt or something. So, all right, well, I've got to be good looking. I've probably got to be smart as well. So I started going to the, the fittest blokes in the prison. And I'm like, all right, well, I want to be like them because I want to be, you know, well, I, I knew I could run, but gym, I'd never really got into the gym. So I want to, I'm want like, I want to put, in, put on a bit of muscle, get pretty fit, and, uh, start training with these blokes. And then I start figuring out, you know, yeah, all right. And then I started going, all right, start giving some tips about relationships and stuff. And they're like, Oh yeah, you know, it's mad as you got your missus, and you got your other missus and then you got this missus. <laughs> when you get out, you like, you know, make sure you got your good missus, but then you're going out and you're doing this because you're gonna be in mad shape and and don't waste that time and I'm going I'm starting to go, Okay. So maybe these bikes are good to ask for fitness. Fitness advice. <laughs> but maybe I should be sticking to there's other fellas that get regular visits from their partners and maybe they're not in good shape and whatever but they seem to be pretty happy so then uh, I started to figure out I need to have my mentors but for all my different areas in my life and I started to chip away at it I was writing letters constantly to my partner and um on the phone all the time as well just sort of talking through things, engaging in counseling very very heavily, signed up to the school's program, all that kind of stuff and just really really committed to to not not I'm not going to say remodeling myself cuz the, the the same sort of person's been there since I was a kid, but it was uh yeah, re, reworking their like I guess the the way that I, I utilised my character traits rather than using it for yeah, for no good. Yeah. You're
2: transferring the skills, transferring well given. The skills. Yeah. And and just um, have you been sentenced yet?
1: Uh, so I it was at nine months on remand that I got that I got sentenced. So I had started like I'd read yeah, the Viktor Frankl stuff, yeah, before I got sentenced, so um, that was, yeah, com- coming up to sentencing, I actually ended up realising, and I got this in my in my diary, I wrote down, like, my, my lawyer was saying to me, oh, you're a youth offender, first major offence, um, you'll probably get between 12 and 18 months with a long CCO, and I'm like, Ugh. and I actually started panicking, and I yeah, wrote this down in my diary that I was like, i I think I need at least two years, which sounds, it sounds crazy, but I was like, I'm, I'm onto a good thing here. I've like, I've got some good momentum. I I hope that I get two years. Like I I wanted two years in prison. Um, I just, I just knew that, that I needed that time. Anyway, my, my lawyer was like, Obscenely wrong I ended up getting Four and a half <laughs> <laughs> You were like Hang on You remember When you, wish you know, I see that And I double it yeah. Yeah, yeah I was like Hey hang on a minute <laughs> But yeah, um That's for four uh, I was so tired yeah, <laughs> In that yeah I'll see that so And I'll raise you Yeah so
2: That sink in there
1: Yeah Um I, I was Pretty I wasn't that I wasn't that rattled By it I had a lot of blokes around You know Everyone was kind of going you know, you are getting five with a three. Everyone yeah, you're four
2: saying. on top. You're probably looking at two. Would that be what it would be? Yeah,
1: if you get if you get four on top, you usually get two. Yeah, but everyone was saying it, it was a indicative, like from what other people were getting at the time for commer- trafficking a commercial quantity. So I got the traffic down, uh, the large commercial downgraded to just commercial. So what was ha- what had happened was I had trafficked the three and a half thousand pills to the the undercovers, which totaled 987 grams. If I had have been over one kilo, so I was 13 grams away, then I would have been large commercial. Wow. They they gave me the large commercial charge because uh, another fella that I knew had called me and after he got off the phone to me, he goes, oh, can you pick me up from work? I said, yeah, no worries. He hangs up. And then immediately after, he sends a Facebook message to someone and says, hey, uh, yeah, I'm going to be available to catch up to sell, sell 2,000 pills to you. And I was like oh, – so I saw that in like, – so that didn't come up. Because like, my lawyers were like going, we don't know why you're getting charged with large commercial. Look, the the prosecutor kept that close to their chest. And the, the day that I was meant to go in for my guilty plea on the lesser charge of, of commercial – then I'm I'm in the sales waiting to go into court and then all of a sudden it's coming up like oh oh no you may be they may be taking this deal off the table and I'm going, What what do you mean? And then they brought out this other evidence, but then it wasn't enough. And then yeah, so I ended up going down for commercial. So yeah, large commercial got dropped. Uh, I thought sorta of thought I'd get four with with the two or five with the three. Which yeah, I got pretty much bang in between. Four four and a half years with two years, nine months. Uh, minimum before I was eligible for parole. So because I was involved with organised crime, I had to spend a minimum of half of my sentence in uh, maximum and medium before I was able to go to to minimum security. Uh, so yeah, after I got sentenced, you know, you sit there for a bit, you kind of go all right, this is how long I'm I'm going to be here for. I've, I'm nine months down, so I've got pretty well bang on two years to go. All right, I gave myself a week and then I'm back into it and I just started going, well, wh- what's next from here? And I had – you have to – if if there's anyone listening to this that, you know – is potentially going to prison or whatever and you're looking at any decent whack. It's, well, if you're looking at any time, plan out your whole sentence from the beginning because you can very easily stuff up your whole experience by not having a, a plan from the from the very beginning. So I started going... I, I went straight up to the screws box, get all my paperwork to find out what I'm going to be eligible for and what time frames. And, um, and then what's going to put me in good stead for parole because at the time it was not long after the stuff with all like uh, Jill Mar and, and all that kind of stuff. So parole was no longer a given. It was a parole's a privilege, you know, you, you're not definitely going to get it. You're going to tick all the boxes. So I was conscious of that as soon as I got sentenced. So I started putting my, my hand up for like peer mentor roles and, um, figuring out which minimum security I want to go to in another nine months once I'm eligible for it and um, all those kinds of things. So I started putting them in place. What what that ended up doing for me though is because I got into the, this, this good role within the prison community, you get like notes dropped on you, which is like people like they drop a note into the screws box because they want your job. So the job that I had, it was, um, you know, you're, just, you're getting paid to give advice to inmates so there might be a new inmate that comes in and someone's trying to stand over him and you've potentially got to go try and mediate with that person go you know or like talk to whatever racial group that they're from and say hey this this kid you know can we leave him alone or whatever and then they might come back to you and say no actually he robbed my mate on the outside whatever so then you've got to go back to him and say man you've actually got to ship out because you you know you might get stabbed, so it's best that you leave. So you just gotta like be a wise head. But there's a lot of people that want those jobs because you don't have to go and mow the lawns or you don't have to go work in the fa- yeah. the steel fabricating or whatever. So yeah, yeah, you, it, it caused a couple of issues for me, but nothing that I wasn't able to to navigate anyway. But um, yeah, ended up getting to the minimum security prison halfway through my bottom sentence, and. I was fortunate enough that I was still with my partner at the time, and uh, and ended up getting like the re- the residential visits, which uh, that's maybe a a story for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a different podcast as well, yeah. mate. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I'll some I extra say, ratings on yeah. this one. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I learned a lot. I'll say yeah. that much. But yeah. Um, yeah, got my got my residential visits – <laughs> when, <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry. that you can read in a book I'm a <laughs> Well it was, it was this whole thing around the whole like What, what, does, the, what does the ideal husband look like yeah. <laughs> okay, I, okay, okay. I started to ask questions And I, I learnt a lot about the fact that I, I'd been a really selfish lover Up until that <laughs> point <laughs> I was beside myself
2: <laughs> Self-learning is is the trying to for you at the moment <laughs> yeah. So we won't go into it deeply around nah. the right book Caucus to the residential, just for anyone that's listening, what does that entail? Not yes. what it entails just going forward and what you're saying, yeah. what does it entail like for a
0: visit? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the pamphlet they give you. Yeah. Uh, what would it say?
1: Yeah, so the it it had criteria so that it's slightly different from from location to location. But residential visits are what people call conjugal visits, yes um commonly. Mm. And it's there's a couple of different criteria. If you if you've got kids uh, you only have to be serving a sentence of, I think it's like over six months or 12 months. That I didn't fit under that criteria, so I don't know the particulars of those ones. But, you know, you're able to have a separate room that you go into and you hang out to have family time for, you know, at medium security it was like one hour. Um, but if it was like the, with a romantic partner, you had to be able to display that you'd been in a romantic relationship Prior to to prison, you had to um, they had to be visiting consistently, and have never had any incidents um, for you know the year and a half leading up to to the residential visits. And I off of all of that information, I went well. I needed to be at Beechworth Correctional Centre because they had the best program there. I would found out that, and this isn't just like easily attainable information like the the officers don't want to help you get a you know they just want to they just want to do like a lot of them just want to do the bare minimum like you find your ones that are willing to help you out and whatever but I did a lot of digging and then yeah figured out I needed to go to Beechworth because they do them in blocks so you get you you go do a governor's request and then you'll get approved and your first block of three you go four hours eight hours and 12 hours and then you have to go again through the, and then once every eight weeks, and then you have to go through the approval process for your next block of three. And then your next blocks uh 24, 24, and then they're ongoing 24 until you get out after you get your first block of three. Um, yeah, I got I got my first residential visit nearly on the the day that I was eligible because I yeah I'd been planning it out the whole time it was it was something that was really important to me but I I um like I was just because I've been training like an animal and everything like that I'm what like in good physical Nick and I kept talking to my partner about it like oh this is going to be the best can't wait for it you know I'm just being a typical bloke and she's crying in visits like oh, I'm nervous and I'm worried like because you know our rela- it relation it it' be different for what our relationships looked like for the last year and a half. I ended up getting into the residential visit and um the door opened the officer closed the door and and she had you know dealt with it emotionally and mentally she'd processed all that and she'd talked about her concerns and got it out and i was able to talk her through it but i was you know just putting away like puffing my chest out like going yeah here we go and then i got in there and she turned around she, you know beautiful woman that she is and i looked at her and I'm very much in love at this stage you would hope so <laughs> but um i just got washed over with guilt like uh, An enormous amount of guilt that I I hadn't felt before because I cared about her so much and I had, like, I felt like I'd reduced her to this situation. And all of a sudden, I've gone from like, I'd just been pumping out push ups so, like, (laughs) I look good. And then all of a sudden, I'm standing there, like, in the shape of my life and I'm crying and I'm I'm like, and I'm apologizing to her, going, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I just kept saying it and she's like, hugged me. it's okay, and all that kind of stuff. and then after that, it became normal, But it was yeah constantly every every eight weeks like you'd be you'd go into your resi visits and you'd spend the time together, but then it's like really, really excited and nervous leading into it, and then it was it was like grief when out the other side. As well, because it's just like the the most amazing. You know, there's no phones in there. There's no. It's just like the most pure time together with somebody that you genuinely love. And um, like with the the way that society moves at the moment, I don't think anybody's ever going to get to experience that that the way that my partner and I did um, in those times. I, I hold those those times very near and dear to me. But uh, yeah it definitely created these you know big emotional ups and downs, but it was it was all positive and it and it put it put us in good stead for for when I did come home as well um, yeah i I got a lot of really fond memories because of that
2: so um and thanks for sharing that mm. yeah I appreciate it, like as I was said you know something special thing for you but I appreciate you sharing it as well um so if we move it forward then, because Obviously, we're going to talk about, you know, um, upon you being released, Mm. but really interested to get when the business mind started to kick in Mm. about what you're going to do when you get out. Because there's a whole other side that we're going to go into now, which is where your life is at now, what you're doing as well, which is equally fascinating yeah. um, and and amazing. I've been privileged enough to know a little bit about it from knowing you, but uh, I think our listeners would really appreciate what you're doing and, and for society and everything you're trying to do with your life now. But just before that, talk us through then how it all built up to being released, what that was like for you, and then we can jump into what you're doing with your life now.
1: Yeah, so I, I'd got involved in a lot of the... Community programs, well, every single community program that I could possibly do, I, I put my hand up for. I did the the longest drug and alcohol program. I did it three times. I uh, got to play on the footy program, got to play on the cricket program. Uh, I volunteered for the salvos, all that kind of stuff. Everything that I could possibly do, I got, got back out there. And that, that was, ab- look, that was so important for, for me to... See that society wasn't gonna like like make me go like like put put me up up on some kind of uh, pedestal, throw tomatoes at me when I come home. Like people were gonna treat me with respect and support me as long as I was doing the right thing. And yeah, I got the 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 parole process is yeah something's got to be done about that. That's I, I'm. Uh, I'm very much my approach with everything that I've got in the correction system and, and I hope it's reflected in the way that I, I talk about my story I, I think that uh, accountability is a is a massive factor that's overlooked when we're talking around you know advocacy and, and all those kinds of things but uh, one there, there's, there's a lot of ways that the correction system can improve and I'll, I'll leave that to other people to talk about but one thing that really creates a lot of undue stress on families not just the people that are in prison is the the parole process It it is completely vo- like void of any kind of consideration of of human emotion because you you go through this a- approval process that's drawn out over well, you, you start the process twelve months before you're eligible for parole, and it'll be two months, three months in between hearing anything back from the, the parole board, and you you just got to try and hope that you've got all the things in place. They don't give you any real good indicators. They'll call uh, they'll call the person that you've nominated to try and get, um, housing with prior to release, and they don't give any indication as to whether. That's going to be adequate or not? They'll give you two months to to give you a response and say, "Oh no, that place isn't suitable. You have got to find somewhere else," and then you're back to the start. So, and then you know, all right, well now I'm probably going six months into my parole, and um, yeah, it's a, look. Fortunately, it went it went right for me because I did plan all of these things out, and I just completely dedicated my life to it. But understanding that I'm definitely not normal, <laughs> I understand that. Um, so for yeah. A lot of people, the, the parole process is so stressful, even if they think that they're doing or they may be doing the right things. it's uh, that That's one thing that unintentionally, I think, corrections sets people up to fail because people end up... There's this saying, where I, I told them to bang it. That's what they say about it. So I, I told them to jam parole up there, whatever, because th- this process, I'm, I'm over it. It's like... It's hopeless, but um, I, I had those same stresses. I was freaking out. I fortunately ended up getting approved for parole, so I got I got approved. They always give you your approval for a parole. Well, they did it was three years since I got released, but uh, it was on a Tuesday. I got called up, and I went to the office. There's a lot of crying stories in here, but yeah, I got given my my, my letter and I knew what it was and um, shaken and I mm. opened it, yet you've been granted parole and you're going to be let out on December the 13th, 2018. So I got granted parole and uh, my partner was, you know, every day, any news, any news? No, no. I waited until she came up and visited me on the on the Saturday and I told her to her face and uh, yeah, I was like, I'm, I'm coming home. And that was, yeah, one of the most exhilarating exhilarating, and, um, I don't know, just wholesome moments that, that I've ever experienced. It was, it was just magical. And then to then go from that, they, they use, so on December 13th, so it was super hot, super dry summer. And in in cinema, they they use like rain as an analogy for a fresh beginning. And um, yeah, it'd been like forty something degree days, and then just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one day, December thirteenth, torrential downpours, flash flooding. When I'm coming home, and I'm like, maybe that's this this guy that was like screwing me over earlier with the double beef and cheese. Now he's like, he's giving <laughs> all right. You're on the right track now, mate. There you go. There's your movie moment. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I got I got to the um, I got to the train station, got dropped off. My partner was there, and my best mate. I just walked around. Uh, so I had 24 hours to report into the paro- uh, parole office down in Geelong. So I got uh, dropped into a Wangaratta, and I just sort of walked around. Like a you know, my eyes was like open, like a, and I was feeling a bit weird about it but I was like oh, look, uh, let's go to a cafe let's go to a ca- cafe so I went to a cafe and I go okay if like smashed avos weren't a thing when I went to jail and then now everyone's getting smashed avocado I'm like oh I'll get smashed avocado I was like whoa this is insane I was like, and that's all I've eaten ever <laughs> they since they don't have much. smashed avocado in jail I'm surprised nah just lobster <laughs> 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 but um yeah i it was like it was like a, a real honeymoon period for a, a good couple of weeks. Like I had apart from like having having a couple of panic attacks, I like had gone into uh into a supermarket, I freaked out, you know, like uh, on the way home my um uh, my missus was like, Oh We shouldn't go to the supermarket. I've read up about this. You shouldn't go to the supermarket. Just give yourself a couple of days and go to the milk bar first and whatever. And then we. But I'm like, nah, 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 nah. I'm going to the supermarket. I want to buy some mangoes. I love mangoes. I haven't had mangoes in years. And then we went in and I froze. Like I was like, and I was shaking. And and she's just like, Luke, are you all right? And I actually got a bit snappy. I was like, just keep walking. Just leave me alone. I'll be fine. I need to do this. And then she left me. But that, that was in the first two weeks. It was only a couple of moments like that. And then I, I kind of got over it. But then uh, reality sort of started to set in and, yeah, there was all the complexities around, like, I, we lived with her brother at the same time as well and he had absolutely no comprehension of what it meant to live with somebody that had been in prison. Uh, I, one of those panicky moments that I had was something that I never would have foreseen coming was I went and got, like, a Safeway chicken for what everyone loves... Safe for chickens, and um, I had plated everybody's food up, put out all their vegetables, and he came past and he ate the chicken off of uh, the skin off of my chicken, and I, I like stared at my plate, and then I started shaking, I started feeling sick, because in prison if that happened, I'd be think like I'm stressing about like I, I have to either be violent towards this person or if I'm not, if I don't, I'm going to have to leave where I'm at because otherwise people were going to perceive me as weak and they're going to take advantage of me. And I, had, I hadn't had that happen to me in prison. I never had one of those situations, but it was like, it just like triggered something in me and then I had to t- take cat aside and say, hey, um, this is what's happening. I feel sick. I know that it's not right. I know it's not reasonable, but I'm just, yeah, I'm, I need you to tell your brother, please don't do that because it really is making me feel not right. But um, what what happened was earlier in my prison centre, so about halfway through, I had through being disgruntled, I, I'd um, come up with this idea that there should be an online store for for people to be able to get property sent into into prisons because my partner would come in drop items of of clothing in. And one week it was okay, the next week it wasn't. And there's always different rules around what you can and can't drop in. And then I had to, as part of my peer mentor role, I ended up making up my own list to put up on pin boards so that people could clearly and concisely understand what's involved. And um, I was like, oh, I can turn this into a business idea. And people were laughing at me like, people aren't gonna let uh, ex-offender, sell clothes and have them sent into pr- particularly not a commercial drug trafficker, mate. Like, you're ridiculous. One. And I was like, no, I reckon I can make this happen. And I ended up, like, printing out a chart and collecting data off people. I was going from unit to unit saying, how much stuff do you get dropped in? What? Um, how much would your family typically spend on it? Uh, how often are they dropping all that stuff? And um, I started to build out a business plan around it I'm constantly getting laughed at it all the time. People thinking that I'm completely delusional, and I completely understand why as well. But I was like, no, nah, I'm I'm going to go after this. I'm going to give it a crack. So I found out about an organisation called Vacro, and through some of the like the business books and stuff that I read, there was this whole like this whole premise of just just email people and ask them for a coffee, and you'll be surprised with who you can get a meeting with. I was like, all right, so I got my mate to make up a, he, he drafted up, like, typed up the, the, like, the first sort of business case for, for Crim Threads, it was, um, and I said, can you email, like, so just make me a, an email and send it to Vacro with the business case, and um, see what happens. So then they ended up responding, oh, this is a fantastic idea. And I said, oh, can you write back and say, oh, I, um, my name's Luke Anderson. I want to come up for a meeting with you. So this was before I got out of jail. And they said, yeah, no worries. We can meet with you. Um, I, I ended up meeting with them. It was eight weeks after I got out of prison. So I got through the, the like real tough period. I was still on my intensive parole, but then I went up to VACRO and I I talked them through this concept that I had and I said look if you guys help me out to get an introduction into the upper management of uh of corrections then once I'm up and running I'll help help you guys out you know that that was a process oh that sounds fantastic yeah absolutely we can do that for you how did you come up with this and I was in a meeting with the CEO and the and the secretary as a um yeah Melanie Pym was the lady's name uh the fella is not the the bloke the CEO at the moment he was someone in stepped in interim I was like oh I just got out of prison eight weeks ago and they're like oh (laughs) (laughs) wish we knew that before we made you any promises but um yeah it sort of it actually yeah got a got a lot of notice and um it's been a lot of real baby steps and I've started to expand on the uh, the idea from there but part of it's been that dealing with any kind of government organization things are extremely like painstakingly slow but it's also worked in my favor because while I needed a couple of years in prison to work on myself you like you have no idea what you're in for when you come home it's this whole other you need to you need to develop yourself again um and you need to live up to expectations you got to you got to work on your you know moral rehabilitation within the the community because while you know that you've turned your life around and and everything you've you've got to understand that there's people that all all that they've done and this is not their fault they, they should have these preconceptions about yeah to a certain degree where it's like all right this guy's sold drugs i don't necessarily want him down at my footy club because who knows well i need to be able to navigate those conversations and say hey no this is what i'm doing i'm volunteering down a community house and and what have you so yeah I, I started chipping away at fair threads while also going down the path of starting to give back to community as well through you know, a couple of different avenues
2: and then um, you return back into your You know, you talked about being, uh, doing an apprenticeship electrician and so Mm. forth, like previously in the interview, Um, and you have a company now? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so what what happened was uh, I finished my intensive parole period, which goes for three months. I went back to my old employer, and I was completely honest with them about what happened. I said, look, you know, this is where I'm at. I'm trying to turn my life around. I understand if you can't help me. But if you can, uh, I'll be eternally grateful for that. And yeah, they helped me get they helped me get back up and running again. Uh, so I got onto uh, like a couple of bigger projects, which was really good. Ended up wrapping up with them and then starting uh, my own electrical contracting company alongside my uh, my brother in law and my best mate. And that sort of presented a couple of opportunities to me in the sense that I'd never run a legitimate business before. I knew I had a passion for business. That like I had a conviction to back that up, uh, but I needed to know how to how to deal with you know regular regular people and learn about you know tax and all those other other nasty things. But um, yeah, I, I didn't have a a real plan apart from I was. Already in the electrical game, and I wanted to start a business. I knew that I wanted to start Fair Threads, but it wasn't like it was just a concept at the time. But um, I needed to do something now that provided me flexibility around all the other things that I want to achieve at the same time. So, yeah, JC Williams Electrical was born and is still going now. And we're looking at turning that into a social enterprise too.
2: And um, that's amazing. And when so t- going back to um uh, to fair threads, where is that now? what's the next steps to to take it to the to the next level that you want?
1: yeah, so fair threads so yeah well the the name cream threads uh got knocked back yeah. because apparently there's negative connotations attached to the word cream <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, I wish I was told that before I spent some money on getting some shirts printed but <laughs> 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 but uh. Yeah, where it's at at the moment is uh, Minter Allison. I'll give them a shout out. They're doing some pro bono work.
2: They do a lot of good work. I know them in the the Social Enterprise, True Westpac Foundation as well. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Minter Allison, they're helping me out at the moment with... So, doing a a hybrid model for Fair Threads. So, Fair Fair Threads, Fair Pathways. And uh, Fair Threads is... The Moneymaker, it's a viable business in and of itself. It's around that. Uh, so it's around that, it's a, you know, creating the online portal for the friends and family of inmates to be able to purchase items to be sent directly into prisons. Along that, alongside that, I'm launching a streetwear brand so that, you know, ordinary, like a socially conscious streetwear brand by the same name so that people are able to, to support the concept Uh, as well and then the not-for-profit fair pathways is uh, concentrating on creating that transitional employment pathway which will employ inmates and then uh, you know get them placed into the distribution centre within fair threads but also create like so develop and deliver programs to people involved within the correction system the first one that I'm working on at the moment is titled If You Knew, which I've filmed some pilots for. Uh, so that's just going and having... Look, I've, I've had conversations with six blokes so far, but we want to you know build it out to more people and it's got to be specific to each state because there's different cultures from state to state. But uh, it's boiling it down to figure out what each of the people that have had good results um, post-release those principles that they all had in common to create like practical tools that other people can uh, apply into their own lives to emulate the good outcomes and then have another iteration which i've been talking to green fox studios about um this if you knew um stuff so it's looking like um, maybe they're going to help me out with it as well but uh, another Um, iteration of it which will help to develop empathy and understanding for corrections staff and other service providers around what it looks like to be able to help people make the right decisions that are going through the system but also know when it's okay to maybe keep people at an arm's length because I've had the experience of um, I've had three or four staff members that I'd come across while I was in prison that I was like, all right, if I ever see them when I'm out, I'm going to walk up to them, I'm going to shake their hand and say thank you for just treating me like a human being. And every one of them that I've seen so far has said, oh, thank you for coming, I appreciate you coming up and saying that to me, but unfortunately I don't work in corrections anymore. I got burnt out because, you know, uh, the the culture with, with the staff members as well as... I'd apply the same tactics to every single inmate and then I'd just keep seeing people coming back again and again and again. So there's people that are ready to change and there's some that aren't quite there yet. So they've got to know the right people to give so that... Because you want to retain people like that within the correction system because they're the ones... Look, if, if people don't have real um, extensive support networks and the right kind of supports on the outside, those kind of interactions... are pivotal in getting those those first sort of steps so yeah through fair pathways i I think that got the opportunity to do some some really cool stuff around those topics and collaborate with some really cool people and fair threads is going to be a revenue stream to to be able to make that happen
2: i love it yeah so you get your you get your surplus and your benevolence yeah Mm. looking beside so it's a very clever very clever business model um and one that we um, in the Social Enterprise World Forum was shared by um, shared by a few people, mm. you know, across the way of how they, how they look at, you know, having social enterprise, which has, you know, a for-profit kind of arm, mm. but also then, you know, the other side, which is the pathways or employment arm as well that helps. So that's amazing. So you need some uh, you need some funding for that or what?
1: Yeah, so once um, once the not-for-profit structure is set up, which shouldn't be very far away at all, I'll, um, I'll be... Definitely putting the feelers out there for funding. Yeah. Uh, the with the Fair Threads element that that's still maybe gonna be there's a little bit more red tape to cut through with, you know, supplying clothes into prisons and what have you. But definitely the not for profit side of things and the development of the program there. I got I got the IP there, the stuff ready to go. Just yet yeah, more funding to be able to do more filming and then start to build out these portals. Uh, and I'm, I'm ready to start on that as soon as I've got the cash in my hot little hand. So, yeah, and if there's anybody out there that's interested in supporting me and this concept, then um, I'd be more than willing to have a chat.
2: I'm sure I will be. Mm. I'm sure I will mm. be. You got documentary as well on the go? You're a busy, man. What's the documentary <laughs> as well?
1: Yeah, it's just a thing that I was doing on the side. Uh, just a little <laughs> thing on the side, eh? Yeah, no, I, I ended up... Uh, getting involved in, there's a documentary called How to Thrive, so it's screening in cinemas at the moment. It's around positive psychology. I came involved in that, uh, so I'm one of six cast members. Through was, I ended up uh, volunteering at the this Cloverdale Community Centre, which is a local community centre uh, in the area that I grew up in, in Geelong, in Corio, and through that I got nominated to be in the community leadership program that's run by the City of Greater Geelong. And the facilitator of that was friends with the couple that were like, oh, we've got this idea about doing this this doco. And then they said, oh, well, you need to speak to this bloke. This is a good story. And, um, yeah, I, I got cast into that. And, uh, yeah, now my face is, is in a few cinemas around the joint at the moment. And um, the program that they've delivered through through that documentary It it definitely helped me with, you know, I was coming through prison. I, I did all the things to turn my life around and had a really strong relationship with my partner who I've completely glazed over the fact that I ended up marrying her. <laughs> I, was to, <laughs> I was going to lead you into that,
2: to maybe get you out of jail on that yeah. one, literally again on that one. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask yeah. this question. Maybe tell us about your life a little bit more, but go on. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, yeah, I ended up marrying her and, and we've now got a, a very happy and healthy four-month-old son who's fat as, which yeah. is great. Awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I... Ended up um, yeah doing all these these really cool things really quickly and people were like, oh no, this is great. But it was the loneliest I've ever felt in my life. And I started to run out of, sort of run out a bit of steam at, at around that one year mark of, of coming home because I'm like, well, if I'm doing all these good things and I've turned my life around and I'm being a good partner, I'm doing these good things in the community, why do I still feel like shit? And uh, that that's something that's not really there, and that's the the importance of like you know we're starting to have uh, conversations around like, lived experience, mentors, and things like that. Which it, it will get better, but for me, I, I struggled massively with loneliness because you know you go you go into a regular workplace at the moment, and people will be like, "Oh yeah, cool," but you're like you're a bit of a um, you feel like a bit of a zoo animal. People are interested in that story, but then as soon as that ends then what beyond that and it's kind of yeah it's an isolating position to be in so getting cast in that was actually a bit of a savior for me it helped me to to work through a lot of the the complexities of coming home that's a really uh,
2: just touching on that point that's really interesting that you've said that because um i always think is with the lived experience in, and you know we've interviewed a few people that have that and then i also go into business mm. but when you know they're presenting at. at Different, you know, forums or conferences and so forth. It's interesting to see, you know, what the interest is in. Mm. Is it in the lived experience and stops there, or can you see beyond that? Because it's not that's just part of where you drew inspiration to become then into business and what you are now is a business person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yeah. It, it just so happens yeah. that you've been in prison, but you are today a business person. You're an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? That's what you are. Yes. But, but you have your story there as well. So yeah. it's really interesting that you touched Great on that point, point yeah. because I've seen it and I've seen in interviews where it's not like that, where it's really focused on that. And that's why today we wanted, like, I think it's has been in two parts, you know, this ep- like, you know, your force is where it led to. But the second is very much about who you are today and what you are doing, mm. which is, you know, what you're going to continue to do forever. But just wanted to make that point because I thought what you said there was... I. I yeah, it just tweak something in my in my head. That I've seen that. It's mm. an important, important point that you make. Yeah. That you're not just rolled out all the time. Yeah, T- exactly. Tell us your prison story. Tell us all that. And then go, yeah, oh, yeah, but yeah, well, yeah. hang on, I'm doing this. Yeah, 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 no, actually back to that. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and Yeah. I think that it's definitely a, a massively key point that gets glazed over constantly. That if you're going to, you tick these boxes, you know, oh, give somebody a house give somebody a job, give somebody a car, give them a million bucks if you want, doesn't matter. They're not going to be happy and then they're going to be prone to making some pretty poor choices. You have to have understanding and belonging attached to all of those things to give people the best possible chance of utilising those resources. Mm. Well said,
2: great point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah... And you can see it when when you're talking, uh, like going back, I think it was your first sentence on the on the episode. But mm. like you you were you had that business mind, mm-hmm. like right from when you were selling lollies mm. and cans of coke at school, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And I think every story that you've said throughout this episode, seen like always from a business mind, mm. a lot of it.
2: Well, it's all planned, isn't it? You yeah. talk about planning things a lot,
0: and then now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then now, you've, when you've come out, stuff like emotionally, all that sort of stuff that you've pushed back and mm. pushed aside, like you're dealing with that later on. and Now you're learning all about that. Um, but you always had that business mind, which mm. was something that was that was like probably you look at it, you look at your values and everything. That was a core value of yours mm. is business.
1: Yeah.
2: Did you write? Um, and, and one thing that I didn't touch on, I just because we just let you let you talk, because it was fascinating when you were talking earlier. Um. That diary that you had mm-hmm. when you were like nine mm-hmm. and you wrote in a forest—you still have that. I think you said you still have it. Mm-hmm. Is it full? Like, is it a full diary of capturing your thoughts back then? And do you like? Do you ever revisit it? Or and that's one part of it. And do you do you still kind of write in journals now? Is that part of what you do, or is that something that was just
1: at that point? I. I have not opened that diary. Uh, I think it's something I want to do but it's uh, it's not something that I'm ready. sure whether I'm ready to do at the moment because, yeah, well, while while I tell this story like, and I, and I touch on the fact that it's not it, – despite all the good things that have happened since I've come home, there's been my challenges. Like, And like I said, I, it was particularly low that one-year mark when I come home with loneliness and then I f- found my feet And then the the doco helped me to sort things out. But then I started to sort of come to prominence. I stopped stopped being a a person, an employee and then I started to be a business owner and then people started to treat me differently for that. And um, then I've been dealing with stuff with my family and, and all these kinds of things. There's still a lot of things that I'm juggling as a person that you can imagine a person that's been to prison. Just because i got my stuff together doesn't mean that all the people around me we have got their stuff together. So as it stands right now, I need to be a pillar of strength for my family and for my community. Uh, The the time will come where I'll be able to sort of give myself a good six months to be able to kick back, revisit those things and really like dig through it. I think I, I need to do that for the sake of being a good father as well i, w- I want to go back into my diary and and see yeah i don't know re- really face those last sort of few demons i suppose and then um and then yeah once i i've done that then i think that it'll put a lot of things to bed and i'll be able to be yeah. be fully at peace then and
2: um, just then i kind of i don't know if you can answer this not are you reflecting this or not yeah also one of the things i picked up on a lot was you, you know you were you know apprehensive at times or, you know, just didn't ask for help. Do you think, you know, saying if you could say it to your younger self or whatever like that, do you think if you had asked for help earlier, your life would have been different or or not? And do you actually
1: now ask for help when, when you can or when you need? Yeah, I – no, no, my life I, – I did try to ask for help early, early in life, but the people around me weren't equipped to be able to give me the help. So – I would ask for help or try to explain things, but then I was very quickly conditioned, just it's best that I don't do that. So I wasn't ever around... Like, there would have been people that would have been able to help me around, but it would have been this thing where I'm having to ask every single person for help to be able to dig out the ones because most of the people that were around around me um, needed help themselves. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that there would have been... Until I got... Into those teenage years, there wouldn't have been people around. Yeah. Uh, maybe in the teenage years, actually, that could have been that could have been pretty pivotal. Look to have somebody in there, and I'd say that it'd have to be a solid male role model as well. Because I, I did have my mum try to line up but her friend was a counsellor or something like that, and sit me down and try to. Talking with, and I was just like, get out of here, like yeah, yeah just stay away from me, sort of a thing. That would have been when I was about fifteen. Um, yeah, I th- I think that it's it's an incredibly complex question. It's one that I've been asked at least twenty times. Mm. Could if somebody had to come and given me help, it would need to be the right person. It would need to be a person that I respect. So they like no no counselor or doctor could have helped me at the time i think it, once again it comes back to this whole lived experience thing where if, if you if you i'm proud to say that if you put me today in front of me at 15 to have a conversation with me i'd 100 i could turn myself around yeah no no dramas
2: i think that's the point as well about that is that yeah it, you you said it it has to be the the right person, at the right time, to help anyone. I think that goes for life now. But the and obviously, you know, as you matured in life and grown up in life, and and done it in a a very different way to most people. Um, mm-hmm. you now feel comfortable when you need something, being able to ask
1: someone for it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's so, it's probably one of my strengths now. like... It's like there's, there's You're help. You're in business
2: now, mate. You need to ask for help everywhere. <laughs> yeah,
1: It's reframed as delegating. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's probably one of the things that I've, I've actually got, because of the way that my mind works, I, I go, all right, this is a weakness of mine and I attack it to a point where I'm like, I have to be better than other people as a, at, at this particular area to compensate for the fact that it was a weakness of mine. And uh, whether or not that's healthy, I don't know, but it's working out for me. But, um, yeah, now it's like other people around me, I'm noticing them. I'm like, why don't you just ask for help? There's all these people out there. Look, ordinary people all the time, you, like, just with the way that um, our Aussie culture is, oh, no, nah, I don't want to ask for this and I don't want to ask for but it's like you're robbing yourself of, you know, like... The whole just trying to do things yourself when you've got a friend that's got yeah. the tools and the ability to be able to do it in a tenth of the time. So just yeah. ask for help. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: And with that, with uh, with looking up to people and everything like that, you've got yeah. a young son now, mm-hmm. was it? Yeah. Uh, congratulations, four months. It's. That's a hectic period, that, yeah. <laughs> that first six months. Yes. That's why he's dead here in doctors yeah. for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't kick me out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you were talking about, you know, you're, you're planning out what, the, what type of person do you want to be and everything, what yep. type of father
1: do you want to be moving forward? I want to be a dad that um, fir- first and foremost one that, is aware of the fact that every single little thing that he does, can helps to shape the person that his children become and the expectations that his children have on other people in their lives as well. But I think that the main thing that really drives me forward is the idea that my son and then, you know, our subsequent children that I haven't met yet, when I I watched this video of um, Tom Brady and he got asked who his his hero was and he sat there and he just stared at the kid and he got a bit teary and he just went, my dad, Mm. if I can be the type of dad, look, and that, that doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes, that doesn't mean that you make this much money or that much money or whatever, just to be able to have my kids say that I'm regarded as... As one of their heroes, and they know that they're loved. It, it's a big task, I know that, but um, it doesn't mean that I, I'm going to be flawless or anything like that. I just, I just want to be a dad that, when, when my kids are asked whether or not they're supported and whether they can trust me and they can go to me with things, they, they'd say yes, absolutely. That, that's a stupid question, of course. Mm. That's a great answer oh, You got me
2: there <laughs> Yeah um, So we finish with every question And uh, We finish with every geez. question Do we? <laughs> I should finish Put that in the bloopers <laughs> Yeah uh, So I finished by asking I guess uh, A question And uh, Interested to get your answer On this one Obviously you know You've talked a little bit About your, your Your childhood And growing up And that But as far back as you can go When you were little What did you want to be When you grew up? I've
1: yeah, a lot of people might struggle to understand this or believe this, but the main thing that I wanted to be when I was a kid growing up was a dad. It was I don't know why, but, um, yeah, the idea of having, like, a, a happy little family was something that, that I really always enjoyed and it was something that I always had in the back of my mind. That was, that was for sure but beyond that as far as as far as work went as well yeah just always from as far back as I can remember I can't really remember a lot of my life before the age of 10 um but I always just remember thinking that I just wanted to be in business and I didn't care what it was I just yeah, yeah. <laughs> wanted to be able to be my own boss and do these things and um go to business with my friends and build an empire together, and I, I really had that sort of tribal mindset of wanting to conquer the world with with my friends and family. So I think that that's sort of coming back into play now.
2: Yeah, you're certainly you're certainly into into that now. So yeah, um, be careful what you wish for. Now eh? I'm yeah. in the business, <laughs> but uh, nah, nah, I love it. Listen, it's uh, been a pleasure um chatting to you like so like as i say um, it was one of the things in the social enterprise world forum one of the, the the greatest things i took away was meeting new people and um as well and meeting yourself and and your wife cat was was for me it was brilliant and we you know we had a lot of conversations over that time but to get you onto the podcast and for you to share your story um, has just been amazing I really appreciate your honesty with it you know you've been obviously told a lot of stuff that's very close to you and, and being vulnerable as well so um, absolute pleasure and also what you're doing as well now Luke you should be very proud of what you're doing now and, and what you're about to continue to do because I reckon you know it's uh, you're making great strides in the world and I can only see it getting better as well you know and good luck with fatherhood and all that brings as absolutely. well absolutely I'm sure you'll be very I'm sure you're very good at that one too mate but yeah absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much.
0: If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson.